Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you for this privilege that we have before us this morning. Who are we to gather before God? If you had not loved us, and if you had not sent your son to die for us, then our worship would never be accepted. But through your gracious work and through your spirit that you have given to dwell in us, to sanctify us, Father, you are willing to set apart even our worship to be pleasing in your sight. And we praise you for that. And I pray that none of us would ever take flippantly or carelessly the privilege of worship. Father, we praise you that you have sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on Calvary in our place for our sins, for the death that we deserved. And you have won us from the grave and we praise you. Father, we also thank you for the mighty, holy word of God that we have open before us this morning. And we pray, Father, that your spirit would take your word and pierce the depth of our hearts and make us more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we praise you and we love you. In his precious name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The last time we were in Romans, and I think it was about two weeks ago, we were talking about these three words that Paul used now to help describe who he was. He was a different man. He was a new man. We talked about how he began his description with the word slave, or he was a bondservant of the king. That's why he puts Christ Jesus or Christ first. And then he uses this word apostle as well to define himself. And then he gives us this idea of the fact that he had been set apart. It happened on the road to Damascus. The Lord grabbed him up on that road that day and set him aside solely for the purposes of God. And those purposes continued forward even through the day of his death as he continues to glorify the Father. But this morning, I want us to begin to consider, we won't finish. In fact, I, I did not have time to go back through here and decide where I was going to stop because I know this is way too much. So I pray that the Spirit will go, okay, right here, and I'll stop. But I want us to begin to consider this gospel of God, and I want us to see how Paul describes it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll tell you very plainly, I've struggled with this for weeks on end. Every commentator that you read or every person that you listen to preach, it seems as though they're approaching these three passages in a different way. And I was super frustrated praying through this, trying to figure out 
which way to, to go with these passages because you want to go the way that Paul went or you went the wrong way. But then I realized what was going on. These words are so grand. They describe the most glorious thing that has ever happened in all of humanity. And then men pick it up and try to put it in their words. It cannot be done. And so one man will look at it from this perspective of glory and another man will look at it from this side of glory. And all of us are trying to describe the same thing, but we cannot do it. We cannot do it justly. The glory that I find in these three passages. So I have prayed that the Lord would help me somehow, somehow lift all of us up just high enough to get just a small glimpse of the glory that Paul writes about. You know, he was given a tremendous gift like no other. The Spirit filled Paul in such a way that he could say so much in just a few words that I don't think I'll ever say in my entire lifetime. You find these passages in like Philippians 2 where he talks about the glory of Christ or perhaps Colossians 1. But when you land on these passages that we read this morning, he did it again. He took a few words and pointed us to the glory of Christ. And they're absolutely breathtaking to me when I look at them and sit before them. So not only are we at a slight disadvantage there, but we're also at a disadvantage for a couple of other reasons that I want to mention to you before we even begin to look at the words. Second reason that we're at a disadvantage is because we're so familiar with the word gospel, we no longer pay attention to the beauty and the wonder of the gospel. It's just old hat to us. And this always reminds me, every time we have friends come from out of town and they want to see us, we want them to stay with us. And so they stay with us. And, and you know, it's not before long you actually have to roll off this mountain to go get you something to eat. And so almost without question, every time we're going down the mountain, and especially by the time we hit the river bridge, they always say, you live in such a beautiful place. To which I look and go, oh yeah, you're right. I just forget to notice. In fact, I don't notice usually at all unless they're in the car or we're coming back home from somewhere else that we've been. And then you hit that bridge and you look up and you see our mountain and you go, man, we, we really do live in a beautiful place. But we see it all the time. And now I drive over that bridge at least twice a day. And I never look at the beauty and the wonder that God displayed in this place in which we live. I want you to understand that the gospel is very much the same way. We are so familiar with the gospel of God that we have forgotten to marvel at it. The second or rather the third disadvantage that we have is there has been so many false teachers and preachers of this gospel and whether we like it or not, they have influenced us. They have taken this precious truth, even on this very mountain, and they have corrupted this gospel and we have to take it and clean it and dust it and wash it before we can even recognize it anymore, I'm afraid. 
Satan has used very effectively his most dangerous tool when we come to the gospel of God. And what he does, and he does it very well, he gives us just a small measure of truth. Like you're baking a cake or something. And he'll take just a half a teaspoon of truth and he'll dump it into this gospel just enough so that we'll let down our guard, we'll ease our minds, and then he will carry us off into a direction with the gospel that God never intended. And he'll land that plane in a foreign airport in a place we're never supposed to be because that's not what God meant with his gospel. And Satan does this to us all the time. We'll see a football player do something spectacular and he'll point to the sky or he'll bow in the end zone and we'll say, oh good, he's a Christian. We'll meet somebody on the street and they'll have a t-shirt on that says hashtag blessed and we'll think, oh good, it's a Christian. We'll get into the conversation with somebody and they'll mention the name God or they might mention the name Jesus. They might talk about the fact that they pray or even for the fact that they go to church and we'll ease our mind and we'll go, oh, good Christian. Now, I'm not trying to make us cynical. We're cynical enough. We need to be hopeful always, but we need to be careful always. You see, God gave us an example of how we ought to be in Acts 17 when Paul rolled into Berea, right? And Luke wrote these words. Now, the Bereans were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica where Paul had been. For the Bereans received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were true. And so with that in mind, we need to apply ourselves diligently to the scriptures, even to understand this gospel that we think we've got it buttoned up and nailed down so comfortably because we've got to go through the process of untying and undoing all the garbage that we've allowed to come into this gospel. For instance, I think we've forgotten the very most singular, important thing about the gospel. And if you'll notice with me back in verse one at the very conclusion, this is the gospel of God. Somehow, we have found a way to leave God the Father out of the gospel. And we have completely forgotten that this is His gospel. You know, many people, and I say it often, even though they profess faith in God, they have very little understanding of who God truly is. And the reason for that is very simple. They have allowed everything and anything else to define God other than the Word of God. It is the word of God alone that we understand God. It's not Facebook. It's not your heart. It's not how you feel. It's not your favorite talk show. It is the word of God where we understand who God is. And when you think about God himself, you have to focus and realize that God has done two great things. God himself has performed two great acts that are recorded for us in the scriptures. Number one was creation. If you remember, God spoke and created everything out of nothing. And in the gospel, God speaks again. And this time it is to declare to us what he has done for us. 
And it's interesting enough, and I'll just paint this trail for you for the lack of time this morning. He did both creation and the gospel entirely in, around, and through the Son. Paul says in Colossians 1.16, For in Jesus Christ all things were created in the heavens and on the earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things have been created through Christ and for Christ. And in the very same way, if you'll notice the passages that are read before you this morning in Romans 1, this gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And what does it say next? Concerning his son. God has done everything and everything God has done, he has done in his son. Every single thing. And it was when the wisdom of God and it is in the love of God that this great gospel was designed and fulfilled. In fact, you're so familiar with your favorite passage, you have forgotten how it starts. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. This gospel is of God because it is his doing. It is what the father has done. Think about Ephesians 2, the greatest one is certainly one of the greatest turns in the whole book of the Bible. Verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up with Christ. God seated us with Christ. This gospel is of God. And we have forgotten to glorify God for what he has done for us in the gospel. There's always been terrible trends from pulpits that have led us astray from this truth. We've gone from the times where the Old Testament God was the angry God and the New Testament God is this new loving God. Probably the most significant current trend in the pulpit, I won't say from the church, I want to always say from the pulpit, from the pulpit is to speak about God as if, as if we all worship the same God. The pulpit today often speaks as if God is some generic life force in the sky and no matter who you call him, he's the same God. Doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Mormon doesn't matter who you are, an animist. We all worship the same God, they say. And that's true to a degree. The world does worship the same God. He just has a little G. And he's the God of this world. So yes, all of those other religions, whatever they are, Jehovah's Witness, I could go down a long list. They all do worship the same God. It's just the God of this world. We don't worship that God as those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. We worship the God who created the heavens and the earth. We worship the God who has a son. He has one son. And his name is Jesus Christ. We worship the God who sent that son to die in our place. We worship the God who raised that son up from the dead, seated him at the right hand, cr 
crowned him king and Lord over all. That's the God that we worship. And that is the only true God. Another mistake that we make, and hold on here before you, I say it and you run out. There are some pulpits that make everything about Jesus. All the way to the point where they never mention God. I'm going to take you to this prayer often. If you're in your notes, I want you to go read it as you study back through this sermon. John 17, Jesus speaking to the Father says this. I completed the work that you gave me to do. You see, the son never failed to glorify the father. He never once made it about himself. He made it about the father. And some people have completely abandoned God for the sake of the son. Other churches have completely abandoned God for the sake of the Holy Spirit. It's all about the spirit. So much, though, that if you can't demonstrate some spiritual gift, they claim, you're not even saved. If you can't speak in tongues, you're not saved. If you can't perform some sort of healing or some mystical, magical thing, then you don't even have a relationship with God. They've abandoned God for the sake of the Spirit. The Spirit would never, never do that. Nor would the Son. The Gospel begins with God. And you know what? The gospel ends with God. The gospel ends with God. What do we say? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the what? Glory of who? God alone. It's what we say. The end of the Gospel, the end of the gospel is the glory of God. The purpose of the gospel is the glory of God. The great Westminster Confession of Faith says the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God. Now let me ask you, how have we failed to do that? Where along the way did we forget that? That we are here to worship God. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. There's your end of the gospel. There's why Christ died. To bring us to the heavenly Father. Again, Jesus says in John 17.1, Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he spoke to the Father, saying, The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. In other words, Father, it's time. Put me on the cross. Pour out my lifeblood. Bear me in the ground. Raise me from the dead. Seat me at your right hand. Crown me king so that I might glorify you, Father. That's the purpose of this gospel of God. It begins with God. It ends with God. It is all about God. In fact, John 17, again, the prayer, Jesus says, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. We've got to recover the gospel for the sake of God and his glory. But let me back up two words now. 
that we've talked about God and let's talk about what God has done. This good news. And this gospel is first and foremost exactly what it says. It is good news. And most of you even know the Greek word, right? Euangelion. Literally means good news. It's God's announcement to us what he has done for us to deliver us from the judgment to come. But you've forgotten that it's good news. Because you've forgotten what all God accomplished in his gospel. For us to remember that this gospel is good news, we have to understand who we are apart from God. Yes. Now, without fail, man, us, we're absolutely convinced that we're good. And even though we've done a few things wrong in the mystical balance scale of things, we've done enough good, we think, to be accepted by God. We think certainly, what do we say? Oh, his heart's good. And we really are convinced, whether you say it out loud or not, that yes, within the depth of my soul, I'm good there. At least I don't deserve to go to hell. So we have no comprehension of what the Bible says. Unless, of course, you've been filled with the Spirit and you've opened up the book and you've read Ephesians 2. Right, Brad? And then you understand that what God says about you is that you're dead in your trespasses and sins. The Bible says that all of us walked according to the lust of our flesh. We indulged in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. That's what the Bible says. By nature children of wrath. You know what that means? That's who you are naturally. And when we walk through Ephesians, we pointed out that's just the familial line. If you were born of a man and a woman, you're by nature a child of the wrath of God. But we'll eventually get to Romans 3.23 where Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you realize, and I'll talk much about this when we get to Romans 3, that's the reason you're condemned. You're condemned because you fall short of the glory of God. You know how they talk about you at work? Oh, they don't cuss. Oh, they don't drink. Oh, they don't party on the weekends. To which you can stop them and say, you do understand that's not why you're going to hell. You're going to hell because you failed to glorify God. We want to make it a list about things, but the Bible says it's because we failed to glorify the Father. That's truly sin. And we fail to glorify the Father just as human beings. Because it is only Christ who has truly glorified the Father. And we have to be in Him to glorify the Father as well. So to remember that this gospel is good news, you have to remember who you are apart from God. But you also have to remember that God's judgment comes. The gospel is good news because it announces to us deliverance from God's judgment and remedy from God's wrath. The view of God today is only half right. Take you back to Satan's tool. This is what they say. God loves you. 
Yes, so much that he sent his son to die the death that he had condemned us to die. God accepts you. Yes, for all those who call upon the name of the Lord. God doesn't judge you. Yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God wants to bless you. Yes, by allowing you to go through difficulties and trials in order to make you more like Christ. You see, the pulpit's just taking the first half of the equation. God loves you. God accepts you. God won't judge you. God wants to bless you. Isn't it great that God is a humanist and he wants to make man the center of all of creation and God wants to glorify man? No, he doesn't. That's not the God of the Bible. God wants man to glorify him. And that's the very reason that Christ had to die. There is a judgment coming. Paul will write this in Romans 2. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God himself calls the judgment the day of wrath. Isn't it good that we have the gospel the gospel is certainly good news because it announces to us God's great deliverance of our souls. All of those Old Testament promises and all those times that God fulfilled his promise of deliverance were simply foreshadowing of our great future deliverance in Christ. As Jeremy walks us through all the judges in the Old Testament, every single one is a picture of our future deliverance in Jesus Christ. My favorite Old Testament picture, and I won't make us turn there. You just jot it down in your notes again. Second Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat. He's standing in Judah, Jerusalem, all that's left. The Moabites and several other nations are coming against them in war. They don't have the manpower. They can do absolutely nothing. So the king carries the people down to the temple. And he begins to pray. And he has one of the most profound and beautiful prayers that you're going to find in the Bible. He simply says, Lord, we don't know what to do. Our eyes are on you. And he leaves it there. God answers him through the prophet and says, all right then. I want you to understand that this battle is not yours it's mine. I want you to get up in the morning and march out to the battlefield and see what I have done for you. So the morning comes and the king gets up and he gets the musicians and the singers and he places them in front. He puts the army behind them and then the people and they go marching up the hill, singing and praising and worshiping God as they go to war. And they get to the top of the mountain and they look over the ridge. And the only thing that they see is all of their enemies lie dead on the battlefield. God had moved in such a way as they turned against one another and they killed one another. And when they got to the top of the mountain, there lie their enemy completely wasted and gone. And they kept singing and worshiping God for what he had done. 
The gospel is good news because that's what the gospel has done for you. You get to the top of that mountain and you look off and you see your enemy lying in the battlefield dead. And I could go on about that because then you see down there that it was you who was the enemy of your own soul. It was you who had rebelled against God. And so rather than having put you to death, God put his son to death. In order that we might just keep worshiping and praising God for his great deliverance. This gospel is better news than I can describe. Paul will put it this way in Romans 5. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what God has done through this gospel. And it is most definitely good news. And let me bring you to the best news of it all. The gospel is good news because it announces that God has worked effectively to bring us into his presence. Take you back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. That's the grand prize of the gospel. You hear David's prayer got answered in Psalm 16. David prays, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore, right? So what has brought us into the presence of God for this fullness of joy? What has brought us to seat us at his right hand for pleasures forevermore? The gospel of God. It is the gospel of God that has brought us into the presence of the Almighty. In fact, if you flip to the end of Revelations, in Revelations 21, verse 3, the Bible says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And we ought not be there. Not one single among us should be there. But because of the gospel, we will be there. And we will enjoy God forever. This gospel is good news because the gospel is God's declaration of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, his son. Let me point out just a few more phrases this morning and I'll finish. Notice with me in verse 2. This gospel of God, which he promised beforehand. You notice that? Paul uses two words, or it takes two words in the English to get at what Paul was trying to say. Epangelomai is the word that Paul should have used. And it simply means promised. Paul could have said that. We understand how a promise works. And they always come beforehand or it's not really a promise. In fact, if I stop right now and say to you this, I promise I'm going to preach this morning. You'd be like, that makes no sense, man. You should have done that like 20 minutes ago. It's been a little longer than that. But Paul, I think, he, I think he made up this word. He puts pra in front of it, which means beforehand. He's really trying to get us to see 
that this God is sovereign and this God is faithful. And when this God speaks, rest. Because everything he says, it comes to pass. And therefore he makes this point, God has promised beforehand And so now we understand that God has always worked through his word. And so it should not surprise us at all that he works this same way in the gospel. It came to us as a promise beforehand. So rest. There's nothing to worry about. It's true. Remember, I took you to creation when we began. Listen to this. Just as the heavens and the earth We're given birth by the power of God. So you and I are born again by that same power displayed in creation. Paul will say when we get down to verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. The power that gave birth to the universe is the power that raised you from the dead. And not just that, just as the heavens and the earth were created by the spoken word of God, so you and I are recreated through the spoken word of God that we hear when the gospel is preached. It's the same word. This is powerful. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God says through the gospel, let there be life, and there was life. Through his gracious, powerful word. This is no toy. This is no mere message. This is the song of life that is proclaimed to you. And it comes through us through his faithful word. And since God works through his word, listen. The making and keeping of promises is God's way. When all we have to go on is a promise, and I've told you this before, we're removed from the equation. There's nothing we can do with a promise but wait. It demands trust. You have to trust in the one who has made the promise. And if you remember, in Greek, trust is exactly the same word for what? Faith. It's exactly the same word. So God works by promises because promises demand faith. God preaches the gospel and it's a promise because that gospel demands faith. So you either trust in what God has said or you do not have faith. Don't fool yourself. Don't say, oh, I have faith in God. I just don't trust in what he says. Brothers and sisters, You have no faith because faith is nothing more than trust in the promises of God. You remember when this good news was announced, there was great joy simply because God had fulfilled his promise. We read this every Christmas. And let me remind you of these words in in Luke 2 verse 8. The Bible says in the same region, there were shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy. What's the good news? God has fulfilled his promise. He said he would send a savior. And look. There he is, 
God has made good on his promise. And when God's good promise was fulfilled, it was good news for the whole world. Right? But listen, let me finish up with my phrases and get to the last one. Not only did God promise it beforehand, but he did it through his prophets. And this makes me tremble. This is amazing to me. I cannot explain it. Why would God use a man's mouth to proclaim something so glorious? Out of one side of a mouth, we curse. And out of the other side of the mouth, we glorify God. I don't know why. God has allowed men to open their mouth and speak about something so glorious. The only thing that I could possibly offer you is Exodus 20, where God himself appeared on Mount Sinai. And this is how Moses describes the moment. He says, all the people saw the thunder and the lightning and the flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain was smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood far off. And then they said to Moses, listen to this, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. And I wonder if that's the reason. If God himself spoke to us, we would fall over dead in absolute fear. And so God uses weak, trembling men to open their mouth and speak of his glory. But on the other side of that, you do understand that is the church's very responsibility to open your mouth and speak of the glories of God and proclaim this gospel to every nation, to every tribe, and to every tongue. That's the job that we've been given to do. And so God did the very same thing with this gospel of His. He promised beforehand through His prophets And where is this good news found? Where do we read it? Where do we understand it in all of its fullness? Look at the last four words. He promised this gospel of God. He promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's where this grand message that brings life is found. And that is the only place. I was surprised really to figure to find out that this is the only place in Scripture that the Scriptures are described in this way. It literally says in Scriptures holy. Paul is describing the whole here. Old Testament, New Testament, holy. Genesis to Revelation's holy. They are described as holy. And there's no article. And hang on, don't let me lose you. There's no thee here. Because Paul's not trying to identify it. Paul's trying to get you to glory in it. And so he describes it in all of its essence. Paul says in all of the essence, in all of the fullness, if I'm going to pick a word to describe the word of God, here's the word I'll give you. Holy. Paul says that's the way I want you to see it. This book, it is holy. When we think about the word holy, hopefully the first place you go is God. Audrey and I, she just spent over two years studying Isaiah. So I asked her, Isaiah 6, where the angels call out to her, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. My question was, speaking of the Father, speaking of the Son, and we went back and forth and we came to the conclusion, doesn't really matter, does it? 
He is holy. He is holy. He is holy. In fact, in Revelations 4, the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes, day and night, they never stop saying this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. He is holy. And certainly with that, we would include the Son. Certainly the Son of God is holy, holy, holy. Not only is He the Son of God, but He is God and He is holy. In fact, when the angel spoke to Mary in Luke 1, you remember what the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child will be called the Son of God, even in the flesh, holy, you see. I don't think I have to expound on the Holy Spirit, but you do understand the triune Godhead is holy. Say with me just a few other things here. But not only is God holy, there are things that were made holy because God had dwelt there. You remember Moses coming up to a burning bush? Remember what God says? Boy, get your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Now listen, that ground wasn't holy until God showed up. And then when God manifested himself and spoke in that moment, it was all holy because God was there. You do understand the temple's not holy. Unless, of course, God is there. And when the presence of God was there, it was holy. There are other things that were holy because God had said, okay, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Whatever he set apart was holy. If you remember, there is one day of the week in the Old Testament law that was holy. It says that the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The sacrifices were holy to the Lord. They were consecrated or set apart to God. Exodus 19, God tells the nation of Israel, I plucked you out from all the other nations on the planet. You're my people, therefore you are holy unto me. You're mine. And everything that belongs to God is holy. So let me bring you back to the gospel. You know why you're holy? Because of what God has done in this gospel. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. Because it is what God has done. He has made us holy through his gospel. And this good news is proclaimed to us in this book, which is by quality, in essence, all of his fullness, holy. And hopefully your Bible says that on the front, holy. Isn't that amazing? You've got something in your house that God has says, holy. Makes me tremble the way I treat it. I feel like at times I should get up, I should shower and shave. I ought to put a suit and a tie on. Lace up my shoes, clean off my desk, lay this book out because it is holy. And it is holy because in these pages from beginning to end, they are of God. It is holy because these words are of God. 
It does not contain the word of God. No, it is the word of God from the very first word to the last word. And it is in the holy scriptures that we hear the promises of God. It is in the holy scriptures that we see the promises of God fulfilled. And it is in the holy scriptures that God wrote his good news to the world. This good news where God declares what he has already done for us in Jesus Christ. Have you heard? Or have you heard it so much? It doesn't mean anything to you anymore. How can we not? How can we not fall down in worship when we talk about something so glorious? Examine your hearts this morning. Has this message from God about what He has done, has it changed your life? Nothing's required. If anything was required, it's not good news. If it was listen to this and do this, that's not good news. We get that every day we go to work from our boss. Listen to what I tell you. Go do what I say. That's not good news. That's work. This is good news. God says, hear me now what I have done for you through my son. And our only response to that is worship. Let's pray.